Good evening. You're very welcome to this edition of Ireland's Generation X, a series that focuses on the group of people born between 1965 and 1985, an artistic generation caught between baby boomers and millennials. We're delighted to present this series in partnership with the Kyo Nocton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director here at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located on Dublin St. Stephen's Green. Our doors might be closed at the moment, but we've been busy behind the scenes working on a collection of digital projects, including events like this one, um, recordings for our digital radio station, Radio Molly, um, and a recent set of poetry films to celebrate St. Bridget's Day in collaboration with the Department of Foreign Affairs. So you can check all of those out at molly.ie. This evening we're joined once again by Professor Barry McRae, a novelist and a scholar of comparative literature. Uh, who will be in conversation with Ian Lynch. Ian is a musician, a singer, a songwriter and a founding member of the band Lancome. And we've long been fans of Ian's. And in fact, nearly two years ago to this day, Ian uh, performed at the launch of Radio Molly on Joyce's birthday here in the museum. That virtuoso performance of uh, Joyce's Ballad of Pierce O'Reilly left the room completely gobsmacked uh, as many of Ian's huge following will have experienced themselves at his gigs at home and around the world. So we're so uh, genuinely delighted to have Ian uh, with us this evening. Before I go, for anybody at home with children at the moment, engaging in the massive homeschooling experiment, uh, you might like to take a look at our learning resources. So most recently, we've been publishing weekly writing workshops for primary school children, but there's a whole range of learning materials for all ages on the Molly website. So have a look at molly.ie forward slash learning for more information about that. And finally, if you do enjoy tonight's programme, I'd encourage you to buy Molly membership, either for yourself or a friend. It's a very easy way to support the museum's programming, both now during the pandemic and off into the future when we when we come out the other side. Um, with that, uh, thanks so much for joining us this evening, and I'll hand you over to Professor Barry McRae and Ian Lynch. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, thank you everybody for coming this evening or this afternoon over in the US. And especially thanks to you, Ian, for joining us. I know you're podcasting and composing and doing lots of things. So we're very grateful for your time. Um, I asked my colleague, um, Ian Newman, who teaches song history at Notre Dame and is a big fan, as you know, of uh, the band. I asked him if he had any questions for you. And the first one he gave me, I thought we might choose to frame our conversation a bit. Um, which is, um, and I'm quoting him now, how did somebody with anarcho-punk leanings end up wanting to found a trad band? So I thought we might um, approach that question by um, maybe just tell us a bit about your childhood and where music was and the kind of musical influences and musical education you had as a child. Um, so I suppose my, my earliest childhood musical experiences outside of the world of like top of the pops and things like that um, would have been very much in my own family um, it was a family I, I just thought this was a very normal thing at the time but a family who were very fond of singing songs and 
a little bit of playing music, not so much like my grandfather would have played uh, the accordion when he was younger and when I was around he would have played the organ and we used to have these big family get-togethers mainly at Christmas time and at, you know other christenings and stuff throughout the year and what used to happen is that everybody would start drinking and then just start singing and absolutely it seemed like everybody in the room would would get a turn to sing didn't matter it you know it wasn't it wasn't a, a question of whether they were good singers or not it was just that's what you did everybody sang songs and that's how they passed the time um so my i only learned in later years that my granddad would have played music professionally when he was younger and then my uncle tommy he would have written a lot of his own songs as well kind of like like comic songs and just very good songs but he would have been playing and singing these at these get-togethers and i had no idea that he'd written them himself i remember going into school you know i'd be going to school after the christmas holidays you know asking people oh do you know this song and, you know singing lines of the song and they'd be like no no and i didn't realize he'd written them um i suppose it, it wouldn't have been traditional songs per se it would have been a, just a big mixed bag of all kinds of stuff like um my granddad would have sang songs like uh, love's old sweet song um you know what they call the mantelpiece songs because you know the, the tenors used to stand up with the mantelpiece singing them and um, you know like popular songs from the 50s and 60s like crooner kind of stuff and then in amongst those kind of songs you might get stuff like someone would sing like a Dubliner song or a Pogues song or something like that you know I remember uh, I have a very distinct memory actually of my uncle Kevin singing the Irish Rover um, at one party it was at you know some stage in the mid 80s because I remember saying to my brother afterwards saying oh yeah there was this song Kevin sang and it was it was all about uh, the boat turned nine times around and the poor old dog was drowned and um, I remember my brother didn't believe me that that was a song that I'd heard but um, you know that was the kind of stuff that was going on so I didn't really like I said I didn't think much of it at the time but um, looking back now I think it must have been an absolutely huge influence um, considering the road that my life has gone down and that you know still to this point I, th I think the, the kind of musical interaction that I most value is unaccompanied singing that to me is just the, the highest art form you know and then what kind of so it would would have been these mantelpiece songs as you call them and then songs written by your uncle tommy so a mixture of new things and old things uh, but also i suppose dublin music hall numbers which come up in which the band has has uh, done yeah absolutely like stuff in this like a didn't particularly hear the song daffodil mulligan but very much stuff in that style like i remember hearing an auntie of mine singing uh, Oh Oh Antonio, uh, yeah, the musical singer Flory Ford and yeah, it's stuff that was very much in that vein, stuff I can't even remember but when I when I heard those kind of musical songs later in life they really struck a chord in me, like they almost like instantly brought me back to those Christmas parties, you know, so I, I was definitely hearing a bit of that stuff there as well for sure. So that, that's still not a trajectory towards a trad band, um, right, so what, so what happened in the meantime then? Um, in the meantime, I mean, I would have, okay, like I started playing the guitar when I was 12, I think. Um, a friend of mine taught me the chords to About a Girl by Nirvana. And that would have been very kind of much indicative of the kind of music I was into at that stage. And you know, I was into like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. also into a bit of like classic metal stuff like Iron Maiden and Metallica and things like that from maybe the age of eight or nine from like older cousins giving me LPs and stuff like that. Um, 
And it wasn't until maybe, you know, I was playing in bands and all as a teenager, playing in kind of like grungy, punky kind of bands. And then about the age of 17 or 18, I started kind of feeling the urge, like I was being drawn towards stuff like the Pogues and stuff like the Dubliners, you know, I might like, you know, I might have gotten a, a best of CD or, you know, got a, a, a tape. I remember a friend of mine gave me a tape and on one side, it was all Christy Moore songs. It was a lot of stuff from the Prosperous album and some of his other solo albums. And on, on the other side, it was like old ska, you know? So just in little dribs and drabs, I started kind of becoming more and more attuned to that kind of music. So it would have been, yeah, bands like, like basically Christy Moore, the Pogues, the Dubliners, and then a bit after that, Planksty, and they would have been kind of the main ones to open up the, the whole world, you know? So I'm curious to know what that discovery uh, felt like for you, that, you know, I suppose for some people, there's an idea, an almost patriotic idea that they want to get into traditional music and understand the kind of um, his, the, the music, the musical history of the country. But you arrived through a very musical path to it, I suppose, then more than another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, to be honest, I think maybe earlier on I would have had a, a bit of a reaction against what I saw as traditional music, you know, and just like Irish culture in general. Like I had a very hard time growing up with like a few teachers and stuff, uh, mainly Irish teachers. And I would have been, I, I, you know, looking back at it now, it's kind of embarrassing, but like just very reactionary against Irish culture, Irish language, Irish nationalism. You know, I was an angry teenage punk rocker and I was against all that and wanted to burn it all down. Um, so, ironically, I think it was the aspects that I was drawn towards in, like, you know, in the songs that I was hearing from the Dubliners and Christy Moore, it was like the kind of social protest songs. It was more political songs. It was stuff like um, The Button Pusher or The Sun Is Burning or Sacco and Vanzetti by Christy Moore or, you know, and songs about like the, the working man and songs of, um, you know, union songs and, you know, the songs um, that Joe Hill wrote and all that kind of stuff, you know, that was really the bridge for me. And um, it was something I saw as, I suppose, ideologically speaking, as well as musically speaking, that um, I was thinking, yeah, well, this is, you know, this is, this is what I meant and it makes sense to me and this is the same you know, along the same lines as the stuff that Crass and Subhumans are singing about and whatever other punk bands I was listening to at the time, you know. Um, and then there was also the what I saw as being a very DIY aspect to the way that traditional music sessions worked. You know, just a very decentralised way of doing it. The fact that, you know, the way I saw it then, that nobody was doing it for a profit. It was just people gathered to play the music that they loved. And to me, that was like, just that's punk rock in, in its very essence, you know? So there's something radical at the core of it that um, you, you weren't expecting that reminded you of, or resonated with the kind of music you were listening to before that. As well. I think so, yeah, because I suppose before I had been exposed to um, that side of the, you know, that side of traditional song, I would have had an idea that was just a, a very conservative kind of culture, you know? maybe um, like very restrictive and right-wing in a lot of ways. And then it was, yeah, so I suppose it was a, a revelation coming across these songs that the Dubliners were singing and that Christy Moore was singing and Andy Irvine and everyone else, you know, which I, and I suppose they were, they were like absolute bohemians back in, in their day as well. But that, yeah, that was really what struck me. Um, so maybe you might tell, um, 
tell us a bit about the band. I think most people probably are familiar with it, but maybe not everybody is. So maybe tell us about the sound of the band, the idea behind it. Maybe just describe it. Um, yeah, so I suppose that the, the sound that Lancome has is something that's developed quite organically over the years. Um, when we started off, we were, you know, just me and my brother and then Cormac and Rady, um, four friends who just really enjoyed playing music together. And now we've been playing together for eight or nine years. And I suppose our sound has grown to be just a, a lot a lot bigger and more expansive. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I find it hard to kind of describe what exactly it is we do. But basically we like to sit around in a room and, you know, we'll find like traditional songs that we like and we'll work them over and over and over until we come up with an arrangement that we're into. And a lot of the time it ends up being on the long side. Um, you know, we, we, we go for like kind of big arrangements like a lot, and a lot of our songs would be like six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, maybe 11 or 12 minutes is some of our longest ones. But um, I suppose it's all about finding, in some ways, finding the emotional core of the song and trying to bring out certain elements that maybe wouldn't be so obvious in other arrangements, in other people's arrangements of the same songs. Um, yeah, I suppose more about our, our own personal um, uh, relationship to the songs, you know, and what we hear in them and what we want to bring out of the songs. And maybe that's what we do. It's, it seems to me like there's, there's two main sides in it. Um, there's yourself and your brother um, on the one side, and then there's um, Cormac and Rady who are more straightforward trad. But the result isn't just one plus one these equals a mix. The result is some kind of third thing that is um, that's not like either one in a way. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, the easy way to look at it, and maybe it's, it's overly simplistic, was like, okay, so you had me and my brother on one side, and we were, you know, coming from this, like, squatting scene, and, we, you know, we, were, we had our own thing going on with just a guitar and a tin whistle, and it was very rough and raucous. Um, and then Rady and Cormac on the other side, coming from a very much uh, straight-laced traditional background, you know, ha had been playing like straight-up trad since they were five or six years old, went to cultists, were, were playing in competitions from a very early age, all that kind of thing. And then the four of us kind of met in the middle somewhere, and that it's somewhere in there that we find our sound from. But it's not really that straightforward because at certain times, like, I might be the one, if we're talking about a certain song, I might be the one being a total purist and saying we have to stay authentic to this. And, you know, Rady and Cormac might be the ones coming up with the mad ideas, you know. So, um, it's, yeah, it really depends on the song, you know. But I think we've definitely found a place where we're all very comfortable. And I can't, I don't think we, I mean, I can't really imagine playing in a band with any other people or how we, you would even go about it. You know, there's been certain times where I've done collaborations with other people over the last few years and I kind of just like oh I just I forgot how hard it was sometimes you know because we've kind of we've we're just so used to doing it now with Lancome that it's just it's become a very natural thing you know it, it is a sound like no other and I know that for lots of people who like the band myself included um, it feels like it fills a, a space that was already there like a space that needed something I couldn't quite describe what it is but I think that a lot of the people who love the band have that feeling that it's something um, very identifiable um, and unique. Um, so what about the repertoire then? What are the songs you do? Where do you find them? Where do they come from? How do you pick them? 
maybe just also describe to people what, what they are? Um, so, yeah, I suppose that the traditional songs that are in our repertoire, they would, oh, like I feel like they, they come to me personally and like the songs that I might bring to the table, they just come very naturally, you know, like it's, it's something as you know, like with the podcast that I do, I'm constantly listening to old recordings, like archival recordings, field recordings of older singers and things like that. Um, and, you know, before the lockdown happened, we would have been going to... Um, traditional singing sessions around the country and the traditional singing festival up in Inishon, um and things like that and still now I you know I'd go to them the odd time on Zoom or whatever where they still have them so you know it's it's just about I kind of I suppose like you know being in a space where I'm always just hearing new traditional songs that I haven't heard before and it's the same with the other lads you know they'd be listening to old recordings or maybe like looking up old songbooks or whatever and just coming across these absolute gems and thinking, well, like nobody's, nobody's gone near this song in 150 years. Why not? You know, this is look at like look at this lads. This is amazing. And then either we agree with each other or we don't agree. And if the four of us are into it, then we'll say, okay, let's give it a shot, and we'll you know we'll try and come up with some arrangement or see what happens with it. And then you know a lot of the times with songs we might work on them for a few weeks, and then we just go, you know, they don't really grab our interest anymore and they fall by the wayside and then sometimes we get really excited about them and like put them into our live set as soon as possible you know so it's um it's something that's just constantly moving and all of us are constantly bringing new songs to the table and i think that's that's almost like the easy part the hard part is the actual like writing original songs that's a lot more difficult i find so uh, let's start with the the folk song part of it um the, so some of them are very familiar songs. Salonika was one people must would have heard a lot, for example. Um, um, there's a good few that are fairly well known, although you turn them into very different uh, kinds of songs. Uh, and then some of them are songs that are not well known, um, folk songs, uh, sometimes English ones, um, that some that seem very simple on the surface, like um, Henry My Son um, or the Turkish Reveille, that then you kind of, expand out you kind of open up into something else yeah um yeah i mean that's yes i, I don't know what the, what was the question <laughs> <laughs> um no i suppose i i think what are the different kinds of traditional songs that you do and what do you um ah okay yeah um so those simple those fairly simple ones that people wouldn't know Henry My Son or the Turkish Reveille. Maybe say something about those ones. Yeah, I suppose like Henry My Son. So that was a song that was, um, it was on an album uh, Frank Hart recorded, this very first album he recorded back in the 60s, I think. And it was an album of like Dublin street songs. And it sounds very much like a kid's version. It's it's actually stems from a much older ballad, uh, Lord Randall. Um, but in, in this kind of format, it was... Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a kid's call and response. Like, you know, you can imagine I might have been connected to a, a little game or something, you know. But um, I remember coming home singing that for the first time and my mother, who grew up in a city centre, she said, oh, we used to sing that song when we were kids, you know, in the 50s when we were playing around. And then my dad, who grew up out in Harmonstown, he said the same thing. He said, yeah, well, we used to play that when we were kids as well. Or not like sing the song. And they recognised that. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know, there's something, I mean, because I see, so the way I understand the tradition is like, 
it's a stream of sorts and at different times, different places and different ages there's all kinds of influences like feeding into this stream coming from all, you know, coming from everywhere there's like, you know, songs like that would have come over with the Scottish planters in the 1600s like old Scottish ballads that came over and are still being sung in Ireland today like Barbary Allen or um, The Lass of Ockram or, you know, Lord Gregory, stuff like that and then you would have had, you know, in the 1800s, you would have had like some musical influences coming in. And you would have had like songs that were written for the ballad sheets. You would have had songs that were like composed by, um, you know, people in this very Anglo-Irish style where they were writing songs in the English language, but it was using the rhyming schemes, like the kind of inter interlinear rhyming schemes and the lots of assonance and alliteration and stuff. Um, and that's a whole another body of song. Not something that feeds into it. And then there's songs that were written around the time of various wars up to, you know, Second World War probably. They were coming into it. Then you have like songs that were written in England and the minor strikes, you know, and all these different things just feeding into this great big stream of tradition. Um, and I, t you know, I don't think that to me, like none of it is really more authentic than anything else. You could have a song that was written, you know, like musical songs, they were written for commercial purposes. They were written for singers who were professional and sang songs on the stages, but people used to go to those shows and they'd come home and they'd start singing the songs and maybe they'd forget the words or maybe they'd change some of them along the way, but that's the way it went. And then somebody else would hear that and next thing you know, the song is in the tradition. Um, and that, you know, to me, that's no less authentic than a song that's 200 years older than that. It's the same, same process that's going on, you know? So, and I suppose Ireland as, as a nation in, in its history is especially attached to this idea of the song tradition and traditional music is a big part of our sense of ourselves. Mm. The idea that we have this long tradition of folk song is one of the ways in which we lay claim to our identity. But um, I suppose, I suppose the, the negative way of saying this was some of these songs aren't all that Irish at all. Um, I, you know, it's not the only way to, to phrase it, but that that that's true, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I get surprised myself. Like there was one a while ago, I was looking into the Rocky Road to Dublin and found out that that was composed for an English musical singer called Harry Clifton. It's not Irish at all. It, it's, it was like written with a stage Irish um, kind of vibe in mind and um, stuff like the Wild Rover. Um, like, you know, The Unquiet Grave, Seven Drunken Nights, all these songs, you know, um, like when you actually look into them and where they came from, a lot of them stemmed from, some of them from Scotland, but an awful lot of them from England. Um, and, you know, but just like, just like any other traditional songs that would have made their way over here and different in, in some way or another um, and become a part of our tradition. And then, you know, as I said, they pass from one singer to another and next thing you know, someone isn't talking about a, a place name in England, like it's not Oxford anymore, they've changed it to Wexford or something like that, you know, to make it more familiar to them or maybe the the characters' names in the song are changed to names that sound a bit more Irish. But, you know, w when you look back at it, you you realise that a lot of these, um, a lot of the older singers and even people that were recorded who lived long enough to be recorded in the 20th century, they, you know, they didn't they didn't care, they weren't concerned with where the songs came from, you know, I think the, the more important thing was if the song resonated with them and if the song held some personal meaning to them and maybe, you know, t 
to me I kind of see that people are more drawn towards the songs where they can see some kind of like parallel to their own lives in you know so I think these are the things that draw people to songs and the songs themselves don't recognize any boundaries like uh, in your podcast um, you describe um I, and you, often you take individual songs and sometimes you talk in more, gen, more general terms about the way songs travel and you have Scotland, England, Ireland, the Caribbean, the southern US, Canada, Australia. Um, so I suppose I'm interested in both what changes and what stays the same. And when you think about the folk songs in general, since you know so many of them, what are some of the, I suppose, preoccupations that remain constant in the songs that... Um, that would come up again and again and again. Um, uh, I, I think there's there's so many different categories that you could go into here, you know. Um, like there's, you know, there's so you have like some of them that have like an anti-militaristic point of view, um, you know, that would describe a soldier coming home maimed or otherwise damaged. You'd have other songs concerning soldiers where they, you know, they have the archetype of. You know, you have to watch out for them, especially songs of warning to young women, you know, not to let, let go near the soldiers or you're going to end up pregnant and they're going to run away. And, um, you know, that pops up in a lot of songs. Um, you'd have songs, and I'm trying to think of like a kind of a very general kind of rule that you could say about them all. But I think one thing that you see very much across the board is that the songs always are on the side of the underdog. Um, and that, that's like that's very much the way folklore works in general like if you look at any uh, of the well-known folk tales it, it's always the underdog it's always the um it's always like the the weakest person who comes up trumps in the end um, and that's i think that that's something that plays very deeply in, into human psychology you know they're the stories that we want to hear you don't want to hear the story about how the rich person got richer you know we want to hear how the poor man stole stole his gold off him and got away with it you know um, and you know, see, so then you have you know have stories like bank robbers and highwaymen that are you know very much romanticised as well. You know, I suppose it's people who didn't who don't leave written traces of their lives leave the traces of their lives in in song. Absolutely, and I think that's something to me that the, maybe like the most. It, it's pretty much it's the only way for us to look into the emotional lives of people who were living 200 years ago you know people have left no other trace of their lives other than these are the songs maybe they didn't write the songs but they learned them from somewhere else and carried them on so they were speaking to these people um, on some level and so you can look at these songs and it can give us clues into how people were feeling about certain things and and even some songs that were written when we can pinpoint them to oh this song was written at this point in time and it was printed by numerous ballad sheet printers around the country, so that must mean that people were generally sympathetic to the point of view that the song was espousing. So it, it gives you this very, very valuable kind of view into what was going on. And if it wasn't for these songs, you, you wouldn't have any idea at all. You know, it's, it's people who weren't written into any kind of history book or anything like that, you know, in any other way. Um, and so some of them are framed as warnings as well, aren't they? they um like especially some of the women's songs yeah yeah absolutely um and i think um yeah you'd, you'd wonder how these songs were speaking to women's experiences at the time um and was there was there anything else like this you know um going on like stuff like um yeah even with salonica and things like that you know 
that's really like speaking to women's experiences like in, in, in Cork during the time of the First World War and you say you think was there anything else like doing that at the time you know it is striking how a lot of the soldier songs are from the point of view of not the soldiers themselves but the women that they leave behind but mothers and and lovers and so on that comes up a lot I think doesn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, yeah, in a very, in a very sympathetic uh, view of their, of their plight and what they were going through at the time. Well, it's just interesting, I think, because I suppose when we think of war as such a big part of history, you know, with a capital H, and what we know in written history is um, the story of the battles and the soldiers, but in folk song, we, we get it sort of from the margins, from the sides of people who are at the edge of the war. Um, but then some songs change their meanings altogether, like the Wild Rover, which is one that you've done together as a band. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? It's, it's kind of almost reversed its meaning over the centuries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, when you think about the fact that now people kind of view it as the Irish drinking song, you know, it's that that's the one, that's the one that first comes to their head. Think, oh yeah, Ireland, yeah, it's all about drinking and the Wild Rover. But yeah, it's fascinating that it, when it was originally written, it, it um, so yeah, it would have stemmed from this, group of ballads that were being written in the 1600s in England called like the, the Goodfellow um, ballads and they were kind of all all based in the alehouse which was like this was the alehouse was the institution that was it was like the lowest form you had the tavern and you had the inn but the, the alehouse was kind of on the bottom it was very much for the kind of lower rungs of society and um, but out of this group of ballads you have um, a smaller group which are all about how you shouldn't waste your money on drink and um, promoting temperance and sobriety, you know, telling people to save the money and, you know, give your, your kids and your wife a, a better quality of life. Don't be drinking down the alehouse with the rest of the good fellows. And that is where the Wild Rover originally stemmed from, was from this group of ballads. Um, it was like, it was a huge song compared to what it is today. It was a 13 verse ballad and it was called the Goodfellows Resolution. And it is, yeah, it's all about this fella who was drank all his savings away and he is yeah, expressing a very deep regret for a, a life wasted on alcoholism and all the people he's, he's hurt through it. And yeah, like, I mean, so from an, an English song of temperance and sobriety to in what is seen as the, the greatest Irish drinking song ever, that's, I mean, that's the biggest leap you can, you can have really, isn't it? Yeah, while leaving so much of the song intact, um, you know, it, 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 you yeah. can still say no, nay, never, no more. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing, that it's not, the actual song hasn't changed, but the function, like where it's sang and the meaning that people give it, I suppose, by the, by the way that it's sung, you know, it's sung with great gusto and, yeah, and but if you, if you slow it down and, you know, like the, the way we did it, it's, it's a bit more... Um, it's just a bit more slowed down. Certain things are drawn out. It's given a different air. The, the lyrics are pretty much exactly the same, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting how, how songs work like that. And yeah, how, you know, given, given a bit of time, um, they can take on such different uh, functions in society that are so far removed from what they originally um, had in mind, you know? So um, if it's okay with you, Ian, we're going to listen, uh, watch and listen to um, you now. Um, it's um, this is a song called the Ballad of Purse O'Reilly, which was written by Joyce for Finnegan's Wake. He includes the the notes and the lyrics in Finnegan's Wake. Do you want to introduce it for us? 
Um, I, I, I don't know what to say really about this song. It's so, so complex. It's a real piece of work. Um, I mean, any, yeah, anyone who's familiar with Joy, which I should know about it. But I learned this. I remember I heard a recording of Ronnie Drew singing it years ago. I think it was recorded back in the 60s or 70s. I'm, I'm just guessing. But um, he, I, he only sang like about seven of the verses and he left out all the really difficult ones. And then um, a good while later, I heard a recording of a really great singer from Artane in Dublin called Barry Gleason. And so Barry recorded an album called I Heard a Bird at Dawn. And you know, Barry, he, he's an ex um, English school teacher and he would have just, you know, he would have just a very great knowledge of Irish literature. And he has songs in the album that are, you know, to come from um, the writing of Yeats. Um, his song from um, John B. Keane from the Sive play. And he has two Joyce songs. And so at the end of the album, he has um, a song called Forgive Me Quick. And then this song, The Ballad of Paris O'Reilly. Okay, I think it's a good, uh, that's a good introduction uh, to it. I mean, the other thing I would only add is that it's definitely the idea of a Dublin folk song put through the sausage machine of James Joyce's brain. So it comes out in a very... Um, sausage machine is the word for it. Yeah. I've just heard of one humpity dumpty How he fell with a roll and a rumble Curled up like Lord Oliver Crumble By the butt of the magazine wall At the magazine wall Hump helmet and all He was one time our king of the castle Now he's kicked about like a rotten old parsnip And from Green Street he'll be sent the order of his worship to the penal jail of Mount Joy, to the jail of Mount Joy, jail him and joy. He was fat the father of all schemes for to bother us, slow coaches and immaculate contraceptives for the populace, mare's milk for the sick, seven dry Sundays a week. Open air love and religious reform and religion's reform so hideous in form. Arrowwise as you couldn't even manage it. I'll go bail me fine dairy man darling. And like that bumping ball of the Cassidy's, all his butter is in his horns, his butter is in his horns, butter his horns. Hurrah there, hosty, frosty hosty, change that short again. Ryan Duran, the king of all rans. Balbaccio, Balbuccio. We had chop, chop, chops, chairs, chewing on the chicken pox and china chambers. Universally provided by a soft soaping salesman. Small wonder he'll cheat her one our local lads nicknamed him. When Shimton first took to the floor With his bucket shop store Down bargain way glore So snug he was in his hotel premises sumptuous But soon we'll bonfire all his trash tricks and trumpery And the short old Sheriff Clancy will be winding up his unlimited company with the bailiff's bomb at the door, bim bam at the door, then he'll bum no more. 
Sweet battle look at the waves washed to our island The hooker of the Hammerfast Viking And Gaul's course on the day that Atlanta Bay Saw his black and tan man of war Saw his man of war at the harbour bar Where from roars Pulbeck and Cook and Hakens evolves Donning wask and Pittlewick and wife and Fampany Fingal MacOscar one sign Bargers, Boniface, Coxman, Gamalhole, Norvegickers, Moniker, Ogasayrak, Gamalhorn, Norvegickers, Cod, and Norwegian Camelel Cod, he is begot. Lift it, hosty, lift it, you divilian, Ryan Duran, the king of all rams. It was during some freshwater garden pumping, or according to the nurse and mirror whilst admiring the monkeys, that our heavyweight heathen Humphrey. First made bold and made to woo, woo hoo, what will she do? The general lost her maiden blue. He ought to blush for himself, yelled, hey headed philosopher. For to go and shook himself that way on top of her. By Christ, he's the crux of the catalogue of our anti-diluvial zoo, Messrs. Billing and Coo, Noah's larks, good as new. He was jelted by Wellington's monument, our notorious hippopotamons, when some bugger let down the back trap of the omnibus. And he caught his dead to fusiliers with his rent in his rears. Give him six years. Tis sore pity for his innocent poor children, but watch out for his missus legitimate. When that flu gets a hold of old earwicker, won't there be earwigs on the green, big earwigs on the green, the largest ever you've seen. Sophocles, shite's power, pseudo-danto, and Annie Moses. Then we'll have a free trade gales banned in mass meeting, for to sod that brave son of Scandinavry, and we'll bury him down in Oxman's town, with all the devil and Danes, with the deaf and dumb Danes, and all their remains. And not all the king's men, nor his horses, will ever resurrect his corpus. For there's no true spell in Connacht or Hell that's able to raise a cane. I, 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 the first thing um, that comes to mind is that you should have got some sort of medal for that. That it seems it must have broken some kind of record. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, that's your your voice is. So recognizing extraordinary, but it's also a feat of memory that's hard to for me to even imagine. You deserve some kind of medal from the city of Dublin um, for that work. <laughs> um, so we have questions coming in now in the chat. Um, so the first one is um, from Anna. And she's asking you, in a world of algorithmically generated musical suggestions, how would you recommend finding older music? Okay, um, listen to my podcast now. Um, oh, geez, that's a tough one. In a world of adoratives, no. Um, like, the, the way I find you have to do is you just have to start digging, you know. Find something, 
find something that you know and start digging. Um, you know, find the artist that you're into, like search out all the other stuff they've done, then find out artists that are connected by them. I'm not talking about like the, um, you know, recommend similar artists on Spotify or whatever. Maybe look up like, um, like if it's traditional song you're after, like forums like uh, mudcat.org, which has been going since like 1998 or something like that. And it, I like I go there all the time for all my information about this kind of thing. Um, there are there's a number of websites out there as well. There's a website called Mainly Norfolk, and basically, if you're looking up a traditional song, they will give you like all the kind of all the versions of this song that's been recorded, all the artists who have done it, all the catalog numbers of the LPs, and some of them are very hard to find at times. But that's always a good place to start as well. So um, between yeah between Mudcat and mainly Norfolk, um, I yeah that's kind of, they're kind of both the two that I, I turn to most often and I'd yeah I'd advise. I, I am going to say or uh, repeat rather you know without getting too into plumas that um, your podcast is a great place to expand your sense of music. Fire drawn here, it's called um, for people who don't know it, and you get everything there from Delia Murphy to um, Caribbean music. Uh, to punk, to rare recordings of us uh, old Australian people in the 1950s. So there's really an extraordinary range of things there. Um, so then the next um, question is from, I don't know if it's Kathleen or Caitlin, um, and it's, I suppose that's answered, what are your favorite, oh no, maybe this is a different one. What are your favorite texts or resources regarding the folk tradition? Um, so two books that I kind of, I, I keep going back to again and again. The first one is Narrative Singing in Ireland by Hugh Shields. Um, Hugh Shields was as an absolute authority on Irish traditional song um, in, in all its myriad forms and that's a really interesting book because he talks about first of all he talks about like narrative forms of Irish language singing so he talks about these um, like Fenian lays these like really 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 long tales of the Fena that were sung and recited and his theory was that because of the existence of this type of song, the um, like the child ballads and those like kind of the more typical like narrative ballads, they didn't come to Ireland as early as they could, and um, he, so he, he talks about the kind of the, all the different stages of the singing tradition from these early Fenian lays to like Shan Nose to the child ballads to ballad sheets and then like traditional singing in the twentieth century, and. Um, that's a really amazing book and then there's another book that I really like and it's called The Singing Will Never Be Done and that's a collection of essays and lectures by Tom Munley. Now Tom Munley was, um, he, he was one of the best song collectors in Ireland I think. He was working for the Irish Folklore Commission for a number of years but between working for the Folklore Commission and working now, it's now called the um, National Folklore Collection but he between working for them, so that would be like, you know, people refer to as the Folklore Archive out in UCD. Between working for there and his own kind of, do, doing his own field work out of his own interest, he was recording songs up and down the country for over 40 years. And he made some really, really amazing discoveries. Like he would have found, he, um, he recorded a singer called John Riley in Roscommon, singing a song called Well Below the Valley. And, before, before anyone found out about John Riley, it was widely believed that that was a song that had died out like 150 years beforehand. 
Um, there's songs like Lord of Bore and Mary Flynn, which is a, a version of a very old Scottish ballad. Same thing, it hadn't been heard of in over 100 years. He made some really amazing discoveries, but just a very, very astute and learned man. And his writing is really amazing because it's, it's really all based on his own experiences. Um, he would have recorded quite a lot amongst the traveling community and he had he had a lot to say about that as well and um, but just it was a really fascinating man and yeah this book the singing will never be done so um yeah those two books i'd, I'd recommend to anybody who's interested in the subject and john riley himself was a traveler i think that Christ, christy moore took songs from as well and am i right that lancome comes from a song that you got from him the name well okay this is where a lot lots of people think this but it, John Riley had, a, I think, a second cousin also called John Riley. And oh. it's, but just for, um, to make it easier, he's usually referred to as John Riley Jr. But um, so John Riley Jr. was recorded singing the song False Lancome, and it was Tom Munley who recorded him singing okay. the song in 1971. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, there's a question from Simon, which is one I suppose connected to the work of the Museum of Literature, which is, um, where do Ian or Barry think the song tradition fits in terms of literature or poetry? Does this tradition of writing get the attention it deserves within the storytelling canon as it's taught in schools and universities? What do you think? Um, I don't think so. I, I mean, to me, I think, okay, so there's the very visible kind of like um, upper levels where you do find out, you know, like when I was in school, we learned um, whiskey in the jar or something like that, you know, um, in second class. And that was really my only experience of like any of this kind of traditional song or music growing up. Um, I think, I mean, obviously there, there are some schools, you know, like the one, the schools that the lads went to where like playing trad and learning Irish songs and stuff um, was a big thing. But I think this like, I think there's a different kind of attitude towards English language traditional song in Ireland. Um, where I think it's definitely not given the respect it deserves. Because I know, every, like, you know, in probably in the educational syllabus and stuff, um, you know, people have a, a bit of respect and admiration for Shannos and Irish language kind of side of things. But for the English language song tradition, it's maybe not seen as something that is as valid as the Irish one, you know. But I mean, despite the fact, I mean, you know, people have been singing these songs for three or four hundred years in the country, you know, like to me, that's that's as, as traditional as anthem, you know, I think it's just just as valid as any of the other like strands of tradition that are extant. I agree with you, um, Ian, and I, I also think that they contain, they're a repository of um, psychological impulses and predicaments that it's um, that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't really narrate or describe in a you know, in an explicit way, but that in an implicit way are very important to feel and have access to and, and helpful for children in that way. Or yeah. not just children, in fact, adults as well. well. Well, this is where I think it's maybe helpful to understand like traditional songs as one other aspect of folklore and what you quite often find in folklore, whether it is like narrative tales or like um, proverbs or things like that. They're really, in a lot of ways, they've been kind of, distilled like they're these like items that have been distilled down to their emotional core so any extraneous 
elements or any bits that didn't make sense to people were just like discarded or lost over time, you know, and they've evolved into these things that I, I think as they find us today are very polished, very distilled, like real just little nuggets of gold because um, they've gone through the mines and gone through the mouths of so many people over the years. And you think about each one of those people could have been making their own little improvements here and there. So by the time they get down to us, I think they're, you know, really, really things that should be cherished and valued. Yeah. And the product of a collective endeavor as well, not just yeah. one, you know, one guy sitting down and writing his feelings, but this um, concentrated um, collective thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and then John James asks, um, where, oops, uh, do you know where the tradition of not singing, but speaking the last line of a trad song comes from? Or what it means um I, I don't know exactly where it comes from but one theory and i'd imagine it's one of those things that's probably a few theories floating around about but one theory that i heard was that um at one stage people in in some areas i don't know where when they started off the song they would they would speak the first line of the song and then sing the song and then speak the last line of the song and the idea behind that was that the conversation was moving out of the kind of mundane everyday speech and moving on to another like specialized level and um, which is the song and then the spoken word or the spoken line at the end of the song was to bring things back down again and signal that the communication was coming back down to the more right earthly stuff so in a way managing the emotions of the the listeners and their experience along those lines yeah and now like i said that's just one theory i've heard and it's, it can be very hard to prove these things definitively but i mean that makes sense to me for sure it's the feeling you have all right that you're just kind of you're being sent back back home or yeah yeah and yeah. um, so we're nearly running out of time but we've one more question from nigel um who's saying what events of today will be good for a ballad that will be sung um by someone not born yet or sung in 50 years from now? Oh, gee, I'd say after the last year we're having, there'll be plenty of ballads being written, yeah. <laughs> we're short of enough material there to keep us going for a, a long while, let's say. Um, and then Ross says, um, what could you say on this, on the revival of the Irish music and tradition when at the time things seem so disconnected from it, I suppose, disconnected from trad and that tradition um, well I, you know and I, I think in, in a certain way I, I think I mean I have certainly seen um, an upsurge of interest in in all aspects of tradition but especially in traditional song over the last 10 years and I think in a lot of ways that is a it's, it's a very kind of natural reaction to uh, the way modern society is going you know and, and the disconnectedness and the kind of the ennui that people can feel uh, the sense of yeah just being like disconnected from yourself disconnected from the landscape disconnected from everything around you and i think in a way there's a, you know the fact that we're kind of headed more towards that way as a society makes leads people to kind of want to dig and find something deeper find something where they can um find comfort and solace and something that's just something that means something you know when we're gonna have this very much um this uh, society of like instant, you know, instant satisfaction where you can, you know, whatever you want, but it's all just kind of useless, you know, consumer goods. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's like, like just eating junk food, the stuff we're getting fed as, you know, culturally speaking, in a lot of ways, I think that can yeah, lead people to want to find something that's just a bit more meaningful. 
um, anything else? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I also have a hope that the vibrancy of the folk tradition in Ireland might be one of the things that protects us from big far right populist movements that you get in other places, you know, that it may offer people a sense of belonging and connectedness um, in this late capitalist world or how you describe yeah. it. Um, in the last few minutes, do you want to tell us a bit about your podcast? Um, I'd like everybody to know about it because I, I find it's been great company for me. Sure, yeah. So I started um, Fire Drawn Air. I'm just about to put out episode 15 on Monday. Um, so yeah, I've been working on it about a year and a half. Um, it started off, I did like a kind of guest radio show with the lads for NTS Radio over in London and I just had such great crack doing it. I thought, yeah, well, I should just start doing a radio show. Um, so, you know, it's gotten a bit more serious um, over over time and um, kind of put put a good bit more work into it now but I'm basically trying to look at um, just various aspects of Irish traditional music and song and you know finding connections with other musical genres and looking at, at maybe other genres that would have influenced Irish music in ways that you wouldn't suspect and vice versa how Irish music and even like sometimes musical tropes or lyrical tropes might have made their way into very just other areas that you wouldn't expect so um, like say a few episodes ago I did one on a tune that started out as an English country dance um, and that went on to become a, a, a Scottish song called John Anderson My Joe which then we find the same tune being used in the Krushki and Lawn and um, by memory inspired other Irish traditional songs but then it's the tune that is used for um, Johnny I Hardly Knew You and When Johnny Comes Marching Home and then I looked at how that influenced um, a book that was written called Johnny Got His Gone and that led on to Metallica writing their single One from Injustice For All. So just like tracing these lines through musical culture but usually using like some, um, some Irish traditional song or tune as its base and just, yeah, just seeing, pulling on the little red thread and seeing where it leads. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a great time researching and recording it and um, yeah, I, I like when other people like it as well. So, so fire drawn ear. That's the name of for us. Yeah, everybody yeah. has it there. Um, and then in the last minute, do you want to just tell us uh, something about because obviously it's been a strange time for a gigging band. Um, uh, what what you're up to next, or what what your what your plans are? Yeah, so we we've spent the last few weeks. Um, actually, we've been all together for the first time in a long time. Um, like arranging new material, writing new material, um, and we've got a load of stuff ready. So, I mean, you know, nobody knows. We have got some gigs booked for uh, in May, and they probably won't happen, to be honest. Um, I'd, I'd imagine that things in Ireland, you know, I can imagine bands from Ireland touring in Ireland before anything else happens. Now, whenever that might be, you know, be good if it was sometime this year. But, um, you know, we're just trying to use the times constructively as we can. We didn't do anything. We had, you know, really great plans at the start of the lockdown. Oh, yeah, we'll just start recording. We'll make loads of new albums and na 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 But didn't do a thing. Played, like, two two live streams for the whole year, and that was it. So uh, now we're, we're really, like, yeah, we're determined to get our heads down and come up with some new material and hopefully record this year. Um, but, you know, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But um, we're, we're trying our best anyway. Let's just, 
yeah, let's say that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, we're at we're we're out of time now, Ian. Thank you uh, very much uh, for joining us. That was fantastic. Oh, really thanks very much for having really me. Yeah, really enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yeah.